Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I'm your host, Frank LaRosa. As always, uh, I appreciate you joining our show today. Uh, today, I'm bringing something a little bit different to the show. Um, I have the managing director for CSG Partners, Stephen Berman, on the line um, or in video if you're watching us on YouTube. And today, we're going to get into um, what is an ESOP, right? And I know most of you are in financial services if you're listening to us and you're a financial advisor, and I would hope that you know what an ESOP is. Um, but how does an ESOP relate to you if you're thinking about going uh, and building out your own independent practice? If you're leaving a wirehouse and you want to go to another firm and you want to start your own firm and you want to incentivize your employees and do all those great things. And so I've asked Steve uh, Berman to come on the line today. He's an expert in this. Uh, he's a co-founder of CSG Partners, like I said, and uh, we're going to get into the weeds here. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Awesome. So, although that the majority of our listen, my listeners are in financial services, and I would hope that they know what an ESOP is um, if they're giving financial advice to uh, to investors. Um, you know, one of the things that is uh, happening within financial services industry is uh, obviously the population is getting older and more and more advisors are moving and opening up their own shops, right? They're opening up their own RIAs or they're affiliating with a firm and they're, and they're, and they're creating their own company and they have employees now and they're, they're in a different position. But then what's happening is private equity is coming in to the business and they've been coming in because they realize the, the amount of cash flow, consistent cash flow that a financial a financial advisor's practice kicks off, right? And so they're interested in that. And I'm seeing, and I'm talking to a lot of advisors about, well, that's a great way for them to monetize their life's work, right? They have a team that, you know, some of them are bigger, smaller, and they go to private equity, they sell their firm, they get a great deal, or maybe they sell half their firm or whatever it is, or they take on cash. And all of a sudden, the culture of these firms changes change because the PEs come in, they want to cut costs, they want to do all these different things. And the culture changes. And and what you're really doing, I mean, from what I've seen, the calculations that I've seen is you're basically just getting seven or eight years of of upfront cash flow. Right. And then after that, you're sort of underwater on the deal. And I was talking about this, you know, there's got to be another way to monetize, right? There's synthetic equity, there's all sorts of ideas. But this idea of an ESOP is something I don't think is talked about enough within our space. And so I'm really happy uh, to have you on and really get into this. One, for my listeners, two, personally, right? As a growing company, I'm close to 60, 60 employees, employees, contractors, right? And I too want to figure out ways, how do I not necessarily monetize my practice today because I'm not looking to do that, right? But how do I engage my employees better in the organization? How do I get more buy-in from my from my employees and reward them for the growth of the business, right? And, and incentivize them to stay and all that good stuff. So can you just start off with number one, your background, 
And then number two, let's just get into sort of the high level. What is an ESOP? And then we'll go from there. Okay, real quick. So my background has also been in financial services my entire career. The first half of my career, I was with uh, directly or indirectly working for Prudential, primarily managing private equity funds. So I've been on the private equity side. I've been on the side of acquiring companies, buying their cash flows, and taking that company forward and letting it grow. After doing that for a long time, for a variety of uh, reasons, an opportunity was created for us to organize and form our own company called, uh, it was called Corporate Solutions Group, shortened to CSG over the years, which advises exclusively privately held companies. We're an investment banking firm, we raise capital, we do M&A, but our primary driver for the last 18 of the 20 years that we've been in business, actually it's 22 now, has been in doing leveraged ESOP transactions. First of all, the acronym ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. It's not a stock option plan, it's an ownership plan. Basically, the owners of the company will be in a negotiated sale to a trustee, professional trustee that will be engaged, will be selling a portion of their company. It could be all, but it's whatever piece they want to sell in a negotiated sale to the trust. And what they get back, of course, is consideration. It's cash, could be cash and notes, some combination. And they may retain an interest either directly or, as you mentioned about synthetics, it can be structured. It's highly flexible. It can be structured. Another way to look at it very simply, imagine a 401k plan that um, has as a single asset the stock of the company because it's a benefit plan. It's an M&A deal wrapped around a benefit plan. And the beauty of that is, and the real driver of that, and the reason why it works so well, and the reason why it motivates people to do this are A, the tax attributes, which because of a benefit plan provides um, enhanced tax deductions at the corporate level and is properly structured, allows the sellers of the company to defer their capital gain tax forever. You heard me right, forever. So they pay no capital gains tax on the transaction. That's a wonderful attribute. And the company uh, gets additional deductions that it didn't otherwise have. That's really of a non-cash nature. So at the end of the day, Uncle Sam is really uh, paying the side of the equation of a private equity deal that would otherwise be paid for by the PE firm. Because what does a PE firm do? They, when they buy your company, they typically will leverage it, utilizing the cash flow, and the rest of it will be kicked in equity. Here, it's going to be a leveraged transaction, maybe not to the same same magnitude, but maybe to the same. It's a matter of what the owners want to do. And then the rest will come through tax savings, which is kind of like the hidden equity in the deal. And why owners do that in addition to the tax attributes is that it allows them, if they so choose, and most do, to stay involved in the company, still run their company, still have be in control of the board, and continue on for many years until they decide you know, what's next, which could either be a second sale to the ESOP, because you've now set up a, plat- a liquidity platform, where over time you can do a second sale, third sale, multiple sales, over time to the ESOP, or if you decide, and eh, no mas, I, it's time to like exit stage right and, and never look back, you can still sell to a third party. It does not prohibit that sort of sale. So that's simply put, without getting into the niggling mechanics of the ESOP itself, kind of the, kind of the high level aspect of it. 
So you're saying that they can do something like this. Um, and if you'll, if for those of you watching uh, on YouTube, you'll notice that I'm I'm taking meticulous notes here because uh, this is uh, this is definitely relevant to 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 my business as well. So so you're saying that um, they can do this, and uh, effectively the employees have equity in the company. So then if they did decide they wanted to have a monetization event with a PE firm that was going to offer offer some some crazy multiple. Um, then they could really vote on it or they could, the the employees would have an additional benefit. Because the other thing that I see is that you have one or two people that own the organization right. and you have a dozen people or so that help, help, help build it. And then they go do a PE deal and only the small handful of people at the top actually got any real benefit from the deal. This is different. Okay. Be- when the sale occurs, Several, it, it it implies several things. One, obviously, there's been a sale, so there's been a transfer of some ownership into the trust, in exchange for consideration that went to the sellers. It sits in that trust and then gets released over time as the leverage of the tra- of the ESOP rolls off. So it's not all distributed immediately. More importantly, if to most owners, the stock isn't distributed physically to the employees. What it is, it's a, it's the asset, as I said, it's kind of like the only asset of like a 401k type plan. So the stock is in the plan. Each year there'll be an allocation that's done by benefit and, uh, by benefit specialists, you know, third-party administrators who can do the work for other kinds of plans, typically can do the work here. They figure out each employee is going to get stock put into their account based upon you know what their W two comp is relative to others. You know somebody making you know two hundred grand will get twice as many shares in their account each year as somebody making a hundred grand. But be, each year they'll be getting shares in their account. Each year there'll be an updated valuation. Each year they'll get a statement that will tell them how many shares are in their account, what the most recent value is, how much of it's been vested, because it has a vesting program just like any benefit plan. But they won't, the important thing here is they're not physically getting the stock. It's 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 kind of a tracking tool. I mean, it's really in, it's in the trust, but it's it's a way of having the employees begin to see, literally see, share when they get their statements, what sort of value buildup there's been. And that value buildup happens as the equity value builds, which builds several ways, right? Pay off the debt, that automatically builds up equity value. You know, as you pay down debt, because you know you have less debt in the company, the equity value goes up. That's just a natural progression, all else being equal. You know, if the earnings, you know, go up, the multiples in the industry go up, the valuations will continue to rise. And over time, people who have been with the company for a while and see more and more shares in their account, they're going to realize, wow, I'm building a lot in this retirement account. Now, the one thing to keep note of here is it's not the type of account where an employee can draw off of it and gain liquidity immediately. It's a or retirement bar, or account. Or borrow against it, right? Like or borrow against account. it, correct. It's, it's a retirement account. But the value is there. And at some point when they retire, you die, you know, or become disabled, or even when they leave the company, you know, either woefully or they're fired, whatever the case may be, the value that's been vested in their account will accrue to their benefit. They'll have, that's their benefit. They may not get it immediately because ERISA has been very specific about the time frame of payouts to people who leave, regardless of the circumstance, different conditions for different circumstances, but they don't get paid out immediately. They get paid out over a period of, say, 
if they die or retire, it could be you know three to five years. If they leave the company, it could be a longer payout. But the value is theirs. And ultimately, when they get that value, they can roll it into their own personal tax-deferred account and still won't pay any taxes on it until they withdraw it for the individuals. Got it. So what's the difference between... So I, I wrote a couple of things down. Um, you talked about what increases the values, paying off debt and all that other yeah. stuff. Do the employees of uh, the, the, the I'll say the well invested and uninvested employees, employees that are are getting this benefit, are you required as an owner to disclose financial documents to them? Like, are they do they get to see that stuff, or is it what what do you have to do as an owner? So all the all the, all you're required as an owner to do is to give them their benefits. It's, it's a benefit plan, so usually they have to get a, a statement of their benefits, which is no different than any other benefit plan. <clears throat> the financial information remains confidential unless you want to unless you want to show your employees that information. Now the trustee and their advisor, because they'll have a financial advisor working with them, because they behind the scenes they've got to assess value. If there's going to be a negotiation on a sale, they've got to be sure that they're not overpaying. They'll pay full value, but they've got they've got to make sure that they've documented an analysis that justifies the value. This is being negotiated between with a third party trustee. An owner can't just say, "I want twenty times my revenue," you know, like. <laughs> Well, they can no. want it, but they may not get it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right, it's going to be a negotiated sale. It's going to be an analytical deal. Now, the beauty of it is, as I mentioned before, if properly structured, they pay no taxes on the transaction. So that implies that you know, theoretically, they could even concede a little bit on the on the nominal price because, as the saying goes, it ain't what you get; it's what you keep that matters, right? So that's good to know. Do they get? Uh, do these employees get? Um... And I guess you I guess it's all up for grabs, but do they get like voting rights? Do they have any can say and control on the firm and direction of the firm? No. So the so the board of the directors, which will be created up front with full input by the you know the shareholders who are remaining on board and selling part of it, it's the it, the governance of the company remains the same. The trustee as a fiduciary is you know, does have the ability to, you know, each year get updated numbers because they have to update the valuation. They can't do that blindly. So each year they'll sit down and have a call with the company and understand the prospects and all. If issues come up that need to be voted on, it really follows the rules of, you know, what I would call, um, you know, corporate law. You know, if you're Delaware, you know, there are certain things that shareholders vote on and other things they don't. If it's a stock sale, they don't get the right to vote. That the trustee doesn't either on a stock sale. If it's an asset sale, there are certain rights. It's technical, you know, that lawyers will chime in on, but it follows the rule. But individual participants in the plan rarely have any say in the matter. A stock gets put into their account. If there was going to be a sale of something that required a shareholder vote, the trustee would vote all of the shares that have yet to be released, and they would, you know, theoretically put out a vote, you know, put out to the uh, people who have shares in their account that they could vote up to the level of their shares. But it's a it's a very rare occurrence, and that takes a long time to happen. We've I, I've never seen a case in my you know since the beginning, and we've done a lot of deals where that's ever come into play in any meaningful way. So it's really not something to lose any sleep over. So if you're an owner and let's say you decide, and, and again, this is part of one of my questions, um, you sort of referenced it before where you can sort of do it do it a couple of times. At the beginning, do you, you, you get evaluation, then you determine, um, I want to 
uh, sell 20, let's just say it's 20% of the company. Well, actually, you probably want to do at least 30. That's how you get the tax deferral. And in, to get individual tax deferral, you got to sell at least 30%. And the company needs to be, if it's not organized as a C Corp, it's got to become a C Corp. You know, and you got to become a corporation too. You got to be a C or an S. It can't be an LLC. But but all these steps can be achieved. You have to operate as an S corp, or you have to, or can you be an LLC filing as an S corp? No, you have to. It's a stock sale, so you have to have the stock bearing company. So you got to be either a C or an S corp. Okay, so that's a that could be a right. Got it. That could be a, a now. That key. seems that you'd say, "Gee, that's a problem." It really isn't. I mean, and what you, what needs to be what needs to happen and happens in every instance is that you know upfront there's going to be an analytical exercise that gets done to reveal for the interested party, you know, what the implications would be of you know, moving into a corporate environment if you're currently, say, an LLC, for example, what that really means. And what it would mean, in fact, if you go to a C-Corp to get the, you know, the full benefit of the tax deferral, you get the tax deferral, you, you got to be as a C-Corp, you say, gee, that can lead to double taxation. That's a factual statement, but it's really the analysis that's going to tell you how much exposure you're going to have on the tax side because of the additional deductions you get by virtue of doing the ESOP, because it creates a new suite of deductions equal to the value of the sale. So you know, as the saying goes, the devil's in the detail on that. But but technically, yes, it has to be a stock-bearing entity. Got it. So what, what's the difference between this and, say, just like a synthetic stock plan? Well, they're, they're different for a lot of reasons. First of all, synthetic stock plans are, you know, they're excellent. Typically, they're targeted at a select few as opposed to the general base of employees. That's usually the objective of these plans, which, by the way, can be done in conjunction with the ESOP. But one does not preclude the other. Oftentimes, the ESOP sale, which is done for, to, to allow the um, the owners of the business to gain liquidity on their equity, which a synthetic does not do. Okay, synthetic is going to basically empower others to have some sort of upside in the company going forward. Right, that's that's the main objective of that. But it, for the owner itself, it's not doing. There's I, no I cash. There's no way. cash infusion. There's, there's, there's no, no cash. Mon- right. There's no. There's no real benefit other than motivating your employees which is important, obviously, because you want to continue to build value. But it's it's not a transaction that's going to help the own, the current owners to gain any sort of liquidity and, you know, uh, or even a partial, you know, liquidity event. Yeah. Yeah. For those, for those of the listeners that don't know, maybe not know what a synthetic stock plan is, it's basically instead of you selling shares of your company to some, to, to an employee or giving them actual equity ownership in your, your, in your LLC or whatever it is you're going to formation, you're creating a document that grants them shares, synthetic shares. So they have no voting rights. They have no control of the company. But if you were to have a monetization event down the road and you gave somebody 10%, you know, some like a calculation that's done, you give them 10% of the company and you did a monetization event, they would effectively get 10% of whatever the deal it was that you did. The, the downside is, I believe, that um, they don't get to the downside for them. It's good for them because they don't have to pay you anything for it. It's bad for the the employee because it's considered 
Ordinary income. Ordinary income versus capital. Exactly. Income. So it's not very tax efficient to either the recipient. It's got no real benefit to the owners in terms of if they're trying to accomplish a goal of getting some liquidity out of the transaction. And good or bad, it leaves out a lot of employees who, even if they had small amounts, could still find this to be a very attractive and incentivization, you know, incentivization program for, for their benefit. It's a great retention tool too. I mean, you know, clearly people who are in these plans and have been there for a while and see that build up are really going to think twice before they decide to exit twice. No, they're not handcuffed. They could leave even if they invested. Their value is going to sit there and they'll get it one day. But if they recognize that their efforts are leading to enhanced value, it's a little hard to walk away from you know, a future if you see a path that that value is going to continue to grow. So with an ESOP, so getting back to the ESOP plan, can you, on the sort of like, you know, the, the masses versus the few, um, can you uh, dictate who the ESOP plan is, is offered to? Not really. ERISA is it tries to make this egalitarian. So really the case is the following. Um, you can set up certain plan guidelines as to how many hours a year you need to work to be eligible to be in the plan. So it can be more embracing or less embracing, but minimally it's going to include people who work, you know, you know, a thousand hours. You know, it could be down to the perfect people who work only one hour a year to be eligible to be eligible to be in the plan. So you can do a little bit of self-selecting. If you have part-time people, you can by deciding on how many hours you need to work, it could keep them, you know, out of the plan. Um but in most cases, um most owners are happy to have everybody included because it also expands the size of the payroll that's part of the calculation of your annual additional deduction at the corporate level. So the bigger that payroll, the more you can, quote, deduct each year in addition to your current deductions. It reduces the tax exposure at the corporate level even more significantly each year. So it's it's a trade-off. Once again, you know, it's an analytical exercise. Um, but uh, that's, that's really the way it works. Now, in addition, as I mentioned, though, you in tandem to that, though, you can have incentive plans for select employees, key people who you absolutely want to keep around, who you recognize through the analysis will do okay or really well in the ESOP, but that's still not enough, you know, that they really deserve more. So you can create, you know, kind of a shadow equity plan. You can do stock appreciation rights. You can do warrants. There's a variety of other tools that can be done in tandem outside of the ESOP. Got it. So what are some of the, from the owner's perspective, what are some of the, maybe this is a loaded question. I, I don't know. What are some of the disadvantages from a, you know, from an owner's perspective on, you know, going into an ESOP plan or creating an ESOP plan? Well, you know, it's complicated, but you know, that's why folks like us exist, right? We're there to help you know, think, help the owners think it through, structure it, help them get the financing, help them get them done, all those things. And it's going you know, it, to it's it's be, be around for years and has to be administered, but it's, but it's not really a bad thing. To me, the, you know, the, the people who in particular should not think about ESOPs seriously are those who own businesses where as a result of the transaction, 
they're going to exit stage right, and there's nobody to run the business. You know, because it, it almost begs the question, you know, what do you? What would a trustee be buying into, right? What, are, what would any buyer be buying into if you have a company that's headless? You know, PE is a, it's a different kind of transaction. For folks who don't want to be bothered and want to really wash your hands of things, that really might be, I mean, it, it may not be as attractive economically as an ESOP, honestly, because the ESOP tax benefits could overwhelm even a, an attractive uh, PE deal. But... It could relieve the owners of any responsibility going forward if that's what they want. Yeah, their employees aren't going to be happy because they sold they sold out to a PE firm that's going to, you know, pinch every penny. But they don't care because they're they're leaving. Right. But if, but if that's the objective, that might be the right answer. But I'd say I would argue that even in those cases, they should always look at the ESOP alternative before they make that decision, unless they're so committed to the notion of I'm exiting and I don't care, making somebody else's problem going forward. But if they're willing to stay involved, even for three to five years going forward, and they have a master plan where there'll be somebody to take over the company, they should look at it. You know, what are the downsides of there to an ESOP? Well, it's going to include all the employees. And frankly, some some owners are always going to be concerned about you know, the concept that they have in their mind that the employees are owning some of their company. You know, sometimes it's a mindset because it's not really a reality. The reality is it's in a trust. The, you know, as I mentioned before, it's like a 401k plan with a single asset will be the stock of the company. It's a benefit plan. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that that the employees may not, even though that's a fact, that's technical, that's accurate, that's real. You know, some employees, you know, really take ownership to heart, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's not just building up the value, but they say, yeah, I'm a part owner. I, I want to say in the business, even though they don't have one, you know, so can it create a little you bit? You have of to ownership? sort of delicately handle that answer. Like, uh, not really. Not really. You know, the answer is look, but, but here's the other side of that coin, which mitigates, you know, any, any resentment they may have on that point. They're getting this benefit for free. It is costing them zero. They do not pay into it. A dime, so it's a free benefit. You know, I've been I've been part of meetings, education meetings, because education is key post closing. You want the employees to know about this. You know, hopefully you do. I mean, most coaches you want to instill. You know, we're all rowing in the same direction, and if we build value, we all benefit, right? Different amounts to different people, but we all benefit by it. But I've had people raise their hand at a meeting and say, "Can I opt out of this?" And, you know, I try to keep them smiling, but I have a little smoke on my face. I say back to them, it's not costing you anything. Why would you want to? Uh, one, I don't think you can, because I don't think the, I think the rules are everybody's included. But why would you want to opt out of it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You, the company's giving you something for free. So, yeah. So this isn't in lieu of like a quarterly bonus or anything like that. This is on it's top a choice. of. Yeah. So this so this is a strategic decision on the part of of the owners of how they want to motivate, incent, and compensate their people. It's an extra benefit. Some owners say, "I'm going to this benefit's great. I'm going to cannibalize some other other benefit where we have for one K plan that we participate in. Whatever you know, whatever it may be. Others say, you know what." We're going to keep that plan in place as well. You know, we're getting a lot of benefit out of this ESOP plan. We're going to get, you know, tax-free liquidity out of this. 
we're going to um, have better, you know, these, all these new deductions at the corporate level. I'm good. I'm happy to leave everything in place. We usually advise our advice, you know, what we can do is advise. We can't make the decisions. We usually advise owners not to cannibalize all the benefits because it's good to have, you know, even though we're not, we're not really benefit people, we're corporate finance people, but it's good to have some what I would call plan diversification because this plan is the sole asset is going to be the stock of the company. And, you know, there could be some unfortunate events or times that are bigger than all of us and best laid plans go afoul and their value may not always go up. It could go sideways. You go down. Hell, it could go to zero. There's no guarantees at all as to where it's going. But so you so if they have other plans that, you know, are invested differently and you can participate, they can put cash into We have them. a 401k. So we provide yeah. a 401k and we sure. have a safe harbor plan. So you know, sure. we contribute three percent to their our employees' four hundred one k. No matter what, even if they don't contribute, and they sometimes we see we get the same question. Well, do I have to do I have to participate to get it? We're like, no, you're going to no. get it anyway. Right, Ex- exactly. So, but you can make the decision. You can say, look, we're giving this benefit, and you can even you know say if the company does well, it's going to be you know multiples of your salary, which that's not BS. That's true. It's usually you know, if the value builds inside their account. Ultimately, they're going to see over time, uh, relative to what they make in comp, um, a very astoundingly high number, you know, that's going to build over time. But that doesn't mean that you should, you know, it's your choice. You know, the owners of the company are in control of this. They can decide. We're going to leave those benefits. You may decide that you're going to cut your match from 3% to I'm making it up, one and a half percent, one percent, or nothing. But that's your choice. You may say, I'm going to keep it all now, and in the future, you may change it. But you, know, you can always point to the fact that, look, we left it in place, make sure everything settles. But now you've got this benefit, it's growing. You know, you, we're not going to match it anymore. So are you um, are you making the contributions or the grants or awards, whatever they're called, you know, award, I guess. Um, is it done like quarterly, annually? How often do they do that? Yeah, so the benefit plan, you know, the ESOP is um, the value is reset. And, and it's, this is done once a year. Okay, so you get the year end, then the trustee has to, you know, do its refresh meeting with the company so they can update their projections. Because so to take this back for a second, let's take three steps back. You know, when when you talk about free cash flow and that's a PE is paying a multiple of trustees doing the same thing. They need to better understand, you know, what the prospects of the company and and the company is a static, it's dynamic. So each year they need to get a refresh because now they got to shift everything a year to assess value. So each year year they're going to, you know, kind of do that refresher. And once that number gets locked in, then and agreed to, because then after after the, the trustee does their work, and the valuation firm for the trustee comes up with a value. They meet with the board, of which you know typically the owners who are selling are part of. They talk about it, you know, make sure that nobody had a swing and a miss. On How is the board some... created? Who is on the board? Up front, it's it's decided and it's agreed to, and it's you know it's it's decided by the current owners. So, you know, let's I'm not let's use you as an example. What let's if it's me? A, like I'm the owner. I'm a hundred percent owner of the of the company. Right. So but, but going forward, the you know, ESOP will have some if you're the if you'd be they'd say we'd like you to get at least one more board member, maybe even two. You know, you can pick them, you know, you know, but we you know, we want that in place, 
you know, within a year of closing. It won't even have to be a closing. It's a good faith thing. But yeah, as a trustee, they want to make sure that there's at least an appearance of good corporate governance. And it's usually more than just an appearance. It's just it's just the right thing to do, you know, going going forward. And then the trustee's on the is on the board. No, would, the trustee no. is not on the board. Trustee is never on the board. You'll pick the board, they'll approve it. You know, they may tell you, look, you want to find somebody from the outside. You know, if you can't find someone, we can give you some ideas, but feel free to go out and, you know, uh, identify people that you think would be good additions. Look, you know, if you do this, you know, meaningfully, you're typically going to try to find people or know people who will be additive to the, you know, to the corporate brain trust, you know? So these aren't necessarily going to be people that are already at the firm, like your 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 C suite. It can be or not be. That's that's you know, they're going to be looking to you. They they have no idea how to run your company, nor do they want to run your company, nor will they ever run your company. So they're going to be relying on you to say, you know, tell us what you think makes sense here. You know, you know. Well, they're really just administrators. Of the share, plan. Right? They're not really yes. gonna come in and tell you what you should be doing and not you, know, you can't do that or you can't invest in that or you can't open up another office or you can't, you know, like not at all. Right. Not at all. I mean, what they're look as a fiduciary, all they're gonna be looking out for is to making sure that things are done you know responsibly, I guess. You know, you know, if they if 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 for example, you know, you they were provided with a forecast which built into it, known to everybody, that you were gonna make four hundred thousand dollars a year because you're gonna lock in your even though you may make a lot more, you're gonna take a lower comp because then you could model in extra EBITDA going forward to build up the value on the sale. It's a very tax smart thing to do if you want to do it. And then you decide and you have a bonus plan too. But notwithstanding all that, you say, you know, even with all that, maybe with a bonus that was built into the plan, it's six hundred, I'm gonna pay myself two million. They would say, hold on here. We paid you based upon what you promised you were going to do of being paid less, but we gave you value for you know the rest of we built back into EBITDA. Not so fast, <laughs> right? You're gonna yeah, you're crushing the EBITDA, right? Right, but we but we but we paid you for some of that uh, anyway because you know, if your projections show that you're killing it because you showed it and we paid you for that and it was based on a certain comp level and you had a bonus plan anyway for a period of time. Any, any bonus plan, anything that's set up is usually just a five-year plan and five years of it. So there, everything could be reviewed and renegotiated anyway. So Right. So getting back to um, the, the component that I'm just checking on the time, getting back to when you're talking about it's got to be a minimum of 30%. So let's assume someone's willing to do that. Are you doling out the entire 30% all at once? No. When the 30% is sold and ESOP now has that 30% block of stock, it is sitting in the trust, but it hasn't been distributed yet. Each year, as contributions can be made by the company, tax-deductible contributions can be made by the company to the ESOP, it's formulaic, it's up to 25% of the eligible payroll, but they have to look at other plans you have. It's a technical calculation that third-party administrators are expert at, at, at figuring out. You know, each year they will look at how much could be contributed, and that will release a certain amount of shares each year, okay, based upon the value of that relative to the value on the sale, okay, that 25% of payroll. Additionally, the company can also pay 
dividends to the ESOP each year if it wants to, to, which will release more shares, but create more of a deduction because it's the only time that a dividend is tax deductible, is when it's a dividend paid by a company to its ESOP so that the ESOP can pay back its debt. When you do that, and it's all discretionary, okay? But when you do that, it creates a second deduction at the corporate level, reducing the tax exposure that you'd have in a C-Corp even lower or reduce or eliminating it completely oftentimes, okay? It'll reduce, it'll it'll go into the, you know, the trust then will re- release more shares in that year. And over time, the full value of the sale, whatever that dollar value, the full will fully release all the shares. Could take anywhere from, you know, four to 10 years to happen before all the shares are released. Got it. Now, when you're saying um, it, also you can you can elect to pay a dividend. If someone, if an employee is vested, do they get a dividend? Can you pay them the dividend? It's not paid to them directly. This is all done through the trust, through the trust account. But their account then, on the part of the dividend that that may stay in the trust, would become so. Ultimately, everybody's in in more mature ESOPs, like you see, are two things in a, in an individual account: a stock account from the shares that have been allocated every year, and a cash account that's side by side with it. This is all inside the ESOP. And there's a cash account as well for cash that may have come in and stayed there for like dividend payments or whatever on the shares that that stayed there. So ultimately, when they leave, they would get you know the combination of the values of the what the stock the stock will grow. Eventually, you get enough cash in there that you know the trustee may you know um, begin to have that professionally invested, just safely, but get a return on that money for. The so they are getting it. It's just it's just they're not getting it. They physically never see any of this. It's all it's all in the an account. account. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Got it. So, um, in the interest of time, because I we can we can keep going down this road, um, how do how does an employer how does an owner I guess an employee employer but an owner so where do they incur fees to run this plan who who are they paying for what right so I'd say depending upon the size of the of the deal and the number of employees you have. A third party, you know, third party administration fees are done usually on a you know, per capita basis. How many folks you have, and, and what they charge for that. Then you've got the. I'm, I'm getting. To, I'm, I'm answering your question, but then there's also the trustee, and the one time valuation every year. And if you have more than a hundred participants, you need to get a plan audit each year. That's just a ERISA rule. The cost of maintaining a plan will be anywhere all for all these parties, from. 35 to 100 grand a year. I know it's a big range, but it depends upon the size of the transaction, how many employees there are. I'd say a good average would be about $50,000 a year, which is, of course, tax deductible at the corporate level as an expense, but it's an expense. What is a typical size company that does this, whether it's revenue size or employee size? Yeah. So the way, the way, I like to look at it as several folds. I mean, first of all, it's a stock sale. So you got to look about transaction size. And I'd say a transaction size of at least, you know, five to eight million dollars, which could be for 30% or could be for hundred percent. So that's changes of size of the the equity value of the company dramatically. You know, if 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 it's if it's five million of a hundred percent, the company's equity value is five. If it's 
five million or thirty percent, the company's value is like sixteen and a half million dollars, right? So it could be any any of those things, which implies if you go backwards about the multiples of you know, say anywhere from five and a half to ten times, depending upon the industry and the growth curve, you know, um, you have companies that typically have EBITDAs of adjusted EBITDAs when you do some addbacks of appropriate addbacks of two and a half to three million minimally. And obviously anything above that is fine. Yeah, it's totally cool. And the n- number of employees, you want to have at least 10 to 15. You know, there are certain concentration rules where the, you know, that that smaller number of 10, 10 to 15 employees has to be analyzed to make sure that you're compliant. But after that, it's not an issue at all. But you know, for you know, for most companies that we deal with, which have EBITDAs of say, you know, three to a hundred million, most of them are like you know seven to twenty-five million. That's just kind of a lower middle market, mid uh, sweet spot for us. Yeah, they typically have between twenty-five and a hundred boys. It can be qualified very easily. You know, a couple of quick questions to an interested party can very quickly make it apparent as to whether there's a pony in there somewhere. You know, whether there's a possibility of doing a deal. And where do you fit in? So where does CSG Partners fit into this whole thing? Sure. So yeah, we're you know, initially we're the folks who will do kind of what we call the early feasibility study, and there's a fee for that that um, that will reveal for the owners whether or not the ESOP really makes sense. What our estimate of a value is, even though. We're not the official party because the trustees got to is the buyer. They've got to validate that, you know, it's what they're willing to pay. But we've done so many deals that we can do a decent job of, you know, simulating their analytical work. We're not always right, but we're pretty. It's a pretty tight range. Yeah, two feet of the hole, as I say. Exactly. You make most of those parts right. Most of them, not every single one, but most of them. And then you've got the. Um, the feasibility study that will tell you about the value. Then they'll tell you, in our opinion, how much external debt could be raised for the transaction. We'll show you a range on that. Doesn't mean you'd decide to take all that debt because there are plenty of owners of businesses who we say we could take, we could, we know through our relationships with literally a hundred plus banks nationwide who understand ESOPs because we do a lot of transactions a year that you, we believe we could raise for you folks X amount. And they say, well, that's a, you know, we've never had that much third party debt before. We don't even want to take that much. We'll take a little bit less. We'll get that cash tax free. We'll take the rest in seller notes that will get paid off over time. And we and we do that assessment as well, and then we do a very granular five year cash flow at the corporate level, and for the individual sellers as well to show them what a transaction or transactions at different magnitudes of sale what that would look like each year in terms of after tax cash flow to them and to the company every single year, and you see all this stuff, and it gives you a lot of a lot to work with to decide whether you want to go forward or not. Those kind of studies cost usually, you know, you know, seventy five hundred to fifteen grand. Most of it like seventy five hundred to, to ten thousand. It's about a it's about a fifty page. Not that volume matters, but in this case, there's no filler. <laughs> it's all pith. It's all analytical. So you learn about, I mean, you learn a lot about your company, at least from a third party uh, view, value and financeability and cash flow possibilities and tax implications, all that. Then if you want to go forward, then there's a, you know, then, then we, then we, you know, hopefully David, there's no guarantee. There's no, they're not obliged to hire us to, to execute a transaction after that, but hopefully they have found our work 
useful enough and our advice to be valuable enough that they do. And I'd say in 99.9, there's always one exception. <laughs> I can't think of it, but the, sure there is one. But in nearly every instance, they'll hire us, retain us. We get small retainers for different deliverables along the way, you know, in terms of, you know, um, putting together a SIM. Of course, it's an M&A transaction. As I said at the beginning, M&A transaction wrapped around a benefit plan. We got a whole, we got to put a whole M&A book together. Looks just like an M&A book, but we're not sending it to PE firms. We're sending it only to the trustee and a bank for financing and then financing and then we close the deal. Okay. So, um, so I appreciate your your time today. So where does someone go to if they're interested in having this conversation with you uh, and, and exploring, you know, in our industry as, as these independent advisor practices become grow and they and they become enterprises right where where they fit into this sort of this category um you know just multiple millions of dollars of of top line revenue and and very strong ebitda and and you know 50 100 150 employees 200 employees i I can count a number of them that i know of off top of my head where do they go other than i guess csgpartners.com is your website it's a great website with a lot of, as, as you know, you've been there, you know, a lot of educational videos and other, you know, useful information. And, you know, my and my cohort, all of my colleagues' contact information is right there unless you, you know, you want to provide it otherwise. It's up to you. Got it. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah. So if, if they want to just give you, you know, give you a buzz, what, what number can they call? If they wanted to get in touch with me, yeah, you know, they could they could call the company's general number. They could they could send me an email at s b e r m a n s berman at csgpartners.com. Um and we could start a dialogue there. Awesome. All right, Steve, that was that was a lot to take in. Uh I hope, I hope I answered your questions. It was great. No, no, it was super, especially for someone that's sort of going through this whole process as we speak. Uh it was very, very timely. Um and it's and again, it is something that I think, um, you know, when I work with advisors and I ask them what do they want to be when they grow up, and and we talk about an enter, they want to build an enterprise and they want to have all this valuation and they think about those things. This is the kind of stuff, and you know, it's like you said, the, the deck of the package that you put together. Sometimes when you go through a process like this, you start learning about what you're not doing right in order to in order to get the best valuation out of your company. Um, so I think that could be an, a, a useful exercise as well. Um, but but I appreciate your time. This has been tremendous. Um, and, um, you know, I look forward to hearing, uh, you know, what kind of clients you get from the call. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, and I appreciate the education for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts.